Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that probes deeply into the issues of motoring and transport. I'm David Brown and in this program we have some new stories, including the National Walk Safely to School Day has been scheduled for September. We talked to our Melbourne correspondent Chris Ledbeater about the love and affection and the need to have a vehicle for his daughter's wedding in restoring a Mark I Jaguar. Adrian Feeney is the chairman and CEO of the Society of Automotive Engineers. He has some strong words about our potential for car manufacturing in Australia. And in sort of quirky news, we again catch up with Brian Smith to talk about an assessment of how well Tesla autopilot vehicles interpret road signs that have been mischievously modified. You can get more information at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. Or you can go to our Facebook page, Overdrive City, one word. So to get the program going, let's have the news. The National Walk Safely to School Day is now planned to go ahead on Friday the 11th of September following the easing of COVID-19 restrictions. The Pedestrian Council of Australia originally promoted a walk-to-work day, which was an unrealistic option for many people. It helped create the view, with some, that the Pedestrian Council was full of zeal, but lacked engagement with people it was trying to encourage to walk more. The journey to school is one category of trip that has become highly dominated by cars, SUVs and utes. Making short trips by walking or by bicycle is a key component of people getting incidental exercise and the trip to school is where many people develop habits that they will take with them for the rest of their lives. The fluctuating situation with COVID-19 may mean that the date of this event may have to be reconsidered again. The UK government is allowing trials of rental e-scooters on public roads. Whether commuting to work or riding for leisure, local residents will be able to test the benefits of e-scooters on roads, cycle lanes and tracks. The trials are designed to help understand whether the devices reduce motor traffic as well as their impacts on safety for their users and others. They will be strictly prohibited on pavements, will be limited to 25 kilometres an hour and riders are recommended to wear helmets. Users will need a full provisional car, motorcycle or moped licence to take part in the trials and must be 16 or over. To avoid a flood of poor quality scooters onto the streets, the regulations only cover rental schemes. Individually owned scooters will be illegal on public roads. The trials are due to last for 12 months. In the United States, several car companies are offering forgiveness plans to new car buyers if they subsequently lose their job. If you lease or own a new vehicle at least 90 days and lose your job, General Motors will make payments up to $500 for up to nine months. They will also cover consumers for up to $5,000 if their vehicle is worth less in two years than they owe and they want to trade it in on a new vehicle. Buyers of Fords, Lincolns and Mercury's 
have to have made payments for at least a month, then the Ford plan will make payments of up to $7,000 a month for up to 12 months in case of a job loss. Ford workers are eligible. And finally, Hyundai gives payment relief for up to 90 days, besides allowing no penalty return of vehicles for those who are suddenly jobless. Jaguar Land Rover will support the city of Oslo to create the world's first high-powered wireless taxis in a program known as Electricity. Multiple charging plates will be installed in the ground at pick-up drop-off points. This allows each appropriately equipped taxi to charge while queuing for the next fare. The system requires no physical connection between charger and vehicle. It engages automatically and provides on average 6 to 8 minutes of energy per each charge, up to 50 kilowatts. By receiving multiple charges throughout the day, hopefully these zero-emission cabs will operate without driving range restrictions. Jaguar will provide 25 of their iPACE SUVs to cab online, the largest taxi network in the Nordics. Oslo wants to make all cabs emission-free by 2024. This can also be a step in developing inductive charging for your garage at home rather than having to plug in your vehicle frequently. The best-selling vehicle in the United States for the last 38 years is not a traditional passenger car, it is the Ford F-150 pickup, which is by Australian standards a big ute. Ford has shown its latest F-150, which includes a hybrid version for the first time. But it will only be built in left-hand drive, and so you will need to pay for a local conversion for Australian roads. Ford says the hybrid will have a range of more than 1,100 kilometres per tankful. The battery capacity is 1.5 kilowatt hours, which is not high, and while it will allow for a small amount of electric driving only, the setup is not just a pollution reduction measure. The hybrid technology will boost the towing capacity to nearly 5.5 tonnes. All models get a 10-speed automatic transmission, rear-wheel drive is standard, while all-wheel drive is optional. And it is a happy birthday to Alfa Romeo, which is 110 years old. Alphas have a passionate following, but their products have had some ups and downs. Hence the joke, what is the most senior position in Alfa Romeo? Answer, the manager of spare parts. Alfa's strengths and weaknesses were epitomised by the Alfa Sud, an entry-level car built between 1971 and 1989. The company was under government control and it was a political decision to build a new state-sponsored factory in the south of Italy. Sud means south. Despite their sophisticated engineering, Alfa Suds, especially the early ones, had a bad reputation for rusting. There were reliability problems as well. Some owners quoted a Henry Longfellow poem, And when she was good, she was very, very good. But when she was bad, she was horrid. Alfa Romeo is now owned by Fiat Chrysler. And that has been the news. Our Melbourne correspondent, Christopher Leadbeater, is a mad keen Jaguar fan. Now, he likes old Jaguars for two reasons. One is he likes to tinker with cars and work on them to a significant level. The second thing is that money is an object. So like all of us, to buy a brand new Jaguar 
is an expense beyond comprehension. So he is, in fact, restoring or has restored a beautiful old jag, and he's here to talk about it now. G'day, Chris. Oh, hi, Dave. How are you going? Good, mate. Good. You had a Mark I when you were young, didn't you? They were much cheaper than the Mark IIs? Well, actually, I had two Mark Ones. The uh, first one was uh, 2.4, almost my very first car that used more oil than it did petrol. <laughs> so you had a passion to get another one now, later in our careers, and upgrade it? Yeah, so the the second Jag that I had was a, a, a Mark One 3.4 four-wheel disc brake car, four-speed overdrive MOS box, and it's that car that I had most fun with. So I was looking for something very similar, but very hard to find these days. So I managed to find a two-and-a-half-litre Mark One, which had been converted to manual, and the manual box was a MOS box. What was the most appealing part of that car for you? I guess the most appealing part of the car is that it had had a, a significant restoration on the body. So all the rust had been dealt with and new sills put in and it had been resprayed and it had been trimmed. And the trim is good, but it's vinyl, but it's, uh, but it's acceptable. It had a moss box, you said. What were the, some of the other mechanical characteristics of it? Well, as Jaguar aficionados would know, the early 2.4s had, with the 2.5 litre with the four-speed MOS box, had drum brakes. So it had drum brakes and it had a 2.5 litre motor with Solex carburetors. They're, they're not the, the quickest sort of Jag that you could have. And, it, it, and I wanted to get back to the experience of the 3.4. So it was a matter of putting a different sort of motor in it, maybe upgrading the brakes and putting a different gearbox in it. That was the idea. We drove it before the change with the Moss box. It had a long throw to it, didn't it? It was a bit like going from second to third was like a forearm shot for a left-handed <laughs> tennis player. <laughs> that and no synchro in first. Well, anyway, first was sort of useless. It sort of runs out at about you know, three miles an hour. They're a good old box, but they're not, they're not very good for modern traffic. No, and uh, without power steering or that? No power steering. No, absolutely not. And it still hasn't got power steering as it is. I, I don't mind that. It's a little bit difficult with parking, but it's actually quite a good feel. You drove it mm. when you were down in Melbourne last, and you quite liked the feedback that the steering was giving you and the, the car itself. Particularly electric steering now has lost some of that really lovely feel to it that you can get in very modern cars. Yeah. And yeah. You had, however, some other engines and such that you wanted to put into it what mechanics did you have available some time ago i mean i always had this in the back of my mind but some time ago a motor came available for sale which is a 4.2 litre jag motor probably from the 60s and it had a couple of good go bits it had been rebuilt by someone and it had been uh, had, had new pistons uh, pistons and rings it had a new oil pump it had new water pump it had conrods that were drilled in the centre to feed the gudgeon pins and it was a quite a good good motor so I had that and it had a series 3 XJ big valve head on it which was good and that motor is now in the car with twin two inch SUs it's also nine to one compression ratio and the gearbox Gearbox is now a uh, out of a 1964 Mark II. It's a four-speed overdrive, all-synchro gearbox. The thing I particularly loved about it is that it does now have what some might crassly call the hot engine for the car and that, yet 
Inside is still that beautiful timber finish. When I was a young lad and looked inside longingly at cars that had this glorious finish, it excited me into the motoring world. This still has that. Yeah, I like it. I mean, I didn't go for the highly glossed sort of finish of the walnut. I did it with tongue oil, and the tongue oil gives it a, a sort of a, a gloss. Oh, I suppose you could describe it as satin gloss, but it's not really satin. It's got a little bit more gloss than that. But the walnut is particularly lovely. The Not having so much shine on it actually brings the colour of the walnut out. And it's certainly very, uh, yes, as I, as I like to boast, I drive a car without, without many options. <laughs> Although I did have two-speed wipers and a window washer. Ooh, a <laughs> window washer. Yeah. Luxury. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> did you set yourself a timetable? Or was this, I'll get it done when I can? Yeah, what, well, what prompted you to finish it? Actually, because I'm retired and, and my son and I have got a warehouse and I've got a, a, a hoist in there, I thought this is going to be a great project. You know, we're going to uh, take a time over it and enjoy every bit of it because I rewired the whole car and, you know, did, redid the engine bay and, and did a whole pile of things in there and put the battery in the boot, etc. And we were taking our time, you know. It was going to be probably a couple of years didn't quite work out that way. Mm-hmm. Quicker or slower? Uh, quicker. So Quicker is unusual. Why? Well, about six months in, uh, I was out with my daughter and her fiancé, and I was saying to her, which of the Jags would you like to you know, use for your wedding? Do you want the uh, XJC, or maybe we could take you in the XJS convertible? And uh, she said, no, 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 Dad, I want the white car. Well, at this point, the white car was in a million pieces all over the garage floor. And I said, oh, fine, dear, that'll be okay. (laughs) So we burnt the midnight oil. Chris, thanks for your time. Okay, see you later. This is Overdrive across Australia. Well, recently, the Society of Automotive Engineers, the Australian branch, came out and made an interesting prediction about where we could go with building cars in Australia. Now, the chairman and CEO, Adrian Feeney, is on the phone and he's going to tell us all about it. Adrian, thanks very much for your time. Uh, It's a pleasure, David. You were saying that perhaps our future could be electric and autonomous. Why? Well, when you look at the, the past, we had pressed metal and we had uh, petrol engine driven cars, and that's, that's going now. Both those facts are going, both those features are going. So what we see now in the future, uh, we see that uh, certainly in Europe and other places, is more and more manufacturers are looking at electric as a, uh, as a way forward. So our proposal is that to introduce a new manufactured vehicle in Australia, it doesn't make sense to go back to the past. So we have to move forward, and electric is the forward direction, and that's why we would propose that electric-driven vehicle would be the way to go. It's simpler too, isn't it? It's not as if you're having to develop such complex technology. True, and, and, and to be honest, the, uh, the electric cars or the motors themselves are becoming more and more uh, developed, but also the batteries, uh, which has been the weak link, as we know, for many, many years, is really get going ahead now in leaps and bounds. So the biggest hurdle is uh, pretty much overcome, and electric has become more and more a viable alternative to petrol. Even then, if we were to import the best batteries or the best electric motors, it, is there a potential in our manufacturing processes not to have to rely on such heavy industry of the traditional production line? Those are the details that get to be decided, but, but our understanding, knowing what we know of the local industries, 
uh, it's more and more likely that all the components could be uh, uh, sourced from Australia. Australia manufactured what was really a small number of cars, even from each factory, yet there was some great skills in understanding how to do that without having huge economies of scale. Was Australia particularly good at that? Very much so. In my own personal experience, I had uh, over 30 years at Holden, and year on year our sales dropped, uh, our manufactured numbers dropped, but we still managed to make a very high-quality and very attractive vehicle for the market. Unfortunately, uh, we had a lot of competition, and the number of reasons why we didn't continue in this market. But the fact is that we have always, in Australia, done a lot more with a lot less. It's a funny story. We often hear, when we, when we go over the States or Europe and talk to our uh, colleagues there, the joke is that there's an engineer for the left-hand side door and another engineer for the right-hand side door and, and neither talk to each other. In Australia, you get the whole four doors under one uh, engineer. It's not just an issue of the cost of labour, is it? We uh, perhaps have too easily sunk into thinking that that will doom us forever. Have we got to take a broader view? Yes. I mean, um, the proof is going to be in what we can produce with less, and that's always been our strength. And it would be a strength under this uh, under this vision of bringing back a limited volume automotive manufacturing business. So yeah, doing more with less has always been our trademark here. As the CEO of the Australian Society of Automotive Engineers, it must break your heart to see Holden and the Holden development process being downscaled, if not uh, removed completely. Well, actually, removed completely is the, is the correct answer, and it's very very sad and. Uh, I mean, we understand the reasons, the, 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 uh, understand why GM had pulled out of Australia, but the, the skills that, the, that was evident out of Holden and, 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 and for other places, Ford and Toyota and other companies, were equally skilled. But to have, have that brain drain occur in, under, our, under our watch in our lifetime, and as, as you say, as the CEO and chairman of SAE, it's very disheartening to, to see that happen. Um, I mean, we do have a future and we must move forward. And the reason why we want to act now is we can't afford to wait as we see this brain drain occurring year on year in our Australian uh, manufacturing and and engineering uh, landscape. What are our weaknesses in that? Do we lack vision? What are some of the things that have stopped us understanding and making use of the intelligence that we obviously have? In a word, government. Unfortunately, and it is my view and the view of many that and unless we get support from the government, and we know we lost that support uh, a few years ago when Holden, Ford and Toyota made their announcements, if we don't get back that support and the government steps up and supports this industry, as all other countries that have an automotive industry, they are all heavily supported by the government. If, if our federal government is not prepared to back this initiative, then quite frankly it's going to be very, very difficult to, to make this happen and we need that support from, from our leaders. The support is not just subsidising inefficiency, it's actually funding the future. Would that be a way you would describe it? That's always been a misunderstanding by a lot of people. Unfortunately, it's very easy to peddle that sort of argument. It's never, ever been a drain on the uh, on, on the finances of the country. In fact, if you look at the statistics, and it depends who you ask here, but, but uh, a range of between 10 and 20 times return on investment has, has been what the automotive industry has provided back to the government. The government's support has been in the millions. Return to the government has been in the billions. And, I mean, any economist will say that's a good deal. 
we've pushed ourselves down to a low common denominator of you know using words like all subsidies are bad do you think then that something like COVID-19 has shown that when something goes different in this case something wrong we really need to have a core behind us that is more than just a short-term profit absolutely I look I mean you know automotive among other industries needs to be considered very seriously by the government to consider whether or not that should come back. In our view, it should, and it makes us self-sufficient in so many other ways. Keep in mind, David, that um, over, over a period of time, over, over history, the Australian government has turned to the automotive industry in time of need to manufacture goods which we don't normally manufacture in the byway of cars and trucks. If it's face masks and ventilators and, and whatever else for COVID, absolutely achievable. If it's something else more dramatic, we can do that too, or we could do it. But without that industry thriving and, and surviving, you can't turn it on. You can't turn it on as quickly. We, we, one thing we learned from this COVID situation is that the best efforts of the governments could not find enough face masks and ventilators in the time they wanted. They had to really reinvent the wheel there. With an automotive industry, that would not have happened. It would have been done in weeks, not months. Is it a role of government to try and maintain a foundation of skills and manufacturing so that we can cope with changes in the future? Well, our, from the Society of Automotive Engineers' position, we want to start the conversation with the government. And yes, the short answer is they have to work with us in order to, to consider all the things we need as a, as a society. And, we will, and they need to look at the big picture. I've taken your time, Adrian, but I do appreciate it. Thank you very much. My pleasure, David. Nice to talk to you. And that was Adrian Feeney, the Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of the Society of Automotive Engineers here in Australia. You're listening to Overdrive. And finally, we come to that segment where we talk with some sometimes quirky, sometimes very serious, as we did the previous week or so about uh, some issues, but we do so with uh, an informed and in intelligent and transport planner of excellence, Brian Smith, who joins us on the line. G'day, Brian. Hi, David. You're over-egging that pudding, I think. <laughs> I just want you to keep <laughs> coming back, Brian. <laughs> if this was Trump, you'd be back every time. But <laughs> You have a story about communication, from traffic signs. There's been a lot of discussion around uh, Tesla's autonomous mode and there's been a few crashes with uh, autonomous mode and, and that idea that autonomous vehicles generally need to be able to read cues around them to determine what they should be doing. So street road markings, uh, speed limit signs, directional signs, all that sort of stuff. They take in that information the same way we do and, and respond to it. Well, an interesting experiment at McAfee reported by Business Insider took a couple of Tesla cars, the latest models, uh, Teslas, in autonomous mode, and they had a road sign that had a 35 mile per hour speed limit. And by adding a small piece of tape to the three to make it look a bit like an eight, like a human would be absolutely clear that this was a tampered with sign, both of the Tesla models accelerated, assuming that the speed was 85 miles per hour. So uh, it's, it's interesting. They're, they're testing whether um, newer versions of the cameras that, that are used in these autonomous vehicles are needed. And, of course, 
they've identified some newer versions of cameras called a Mobileye Q3, which were not fooled by the modified sign. But this idea, there are plenty of um, these older vehicles on the road. And, and if we ever get to autonomous vehicles, and I'm not sure that it's going to be an easy transition for anybody, then uh, you know there is also the potential, I guess, for, for ne'er-do-wells to, to tinker with the road signs and, and uh, street markings and things that they rely on. Is this a risk, David? What interpretation might you put on it? If you come to a sign that's got shotgun marks all over it, maybe you want to speed up and get through the place because there's a whole pile of rednecks around. Read the room sort of stuff, read your surroundings. What happens if you see a Nazi SWAT sticker on a sign? Maybe what the car should do is turn around and go back. Hmm. Welcome to Melbourne. Yeah. <laughs> Everything in an electric or autonomous car should have a backup system or maybe a double-check system to do it. The other issue then is older cars and what happens now. We don't have many older cars with this sort of technology, but we will in the future. That The car I buy now, what will happen if there's something that's identified in five years' time that needs to be upgraded. Now, Tesla says it can do that very quickly. Maybe that becomes an essential parameter of these sorts of vehicles. The other thing and final thing is, what about having speed limits that reflect the conditions? And so that if you see an 85 mile an hour and there, and there are houses and shops and that around there, either you or somebody ought to be able to say, well, the system say, hang on, that doesn't make sense. It's a perennial problem with speed zoning, isn't it, Brian, that people have put up signs that suggest a speed that is inconsistent with what you see around you. Yes, I agree. And it strikes strikes me that regulation is needed in some way. Of course, one of the ways of dealing with autonomous vehicles would be to have the street, in a sense, talk to the vehicles and set the parameters for their performance. So in that case, you know, the car wouldn't be trying to interpret what it's seeing around it in terms of speed limit, the, the road would be saying this is the speed limit and you would be able to dynamically manage that, right? So you might say during school periods, no vehicle able to drive faster than 40 kilometres per hour, say. Brian, lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, David. Always a pleasure. That's Brian Smith, traffic expert and a person with a good view of the world, a broad view of the world that helps us discuss issues that at times are quirky and at times are deeply serious, here on Overdrive. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Chris Ledbeater, Adrian Feeney, Brian Smith and Paul Just for their great help in producing this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify or there's our Facebook site, Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.